Amen. Let's open up to the book of Joshua. We're going to finish the book of Joshua tonight. We're going to look at chapters 23 and 24. This has been a really wonderful book, and when I come back from Israel in a couple weeks, we will uh, start the book of Judges, so I hope you'll join us then. Looking forward to that book, even though it's uh, the the news in in the book, it's like a roller coaster, and so we'll look at that. But tonight, Joshua chapter 23, um, you remember uh, last week we looked at uh, chapter 22, and this was after the Israelites had finally gotten into the land, and Joshua and the heads of the tribes of Israel and um, the Levites, they, they were able to partition the land, and so every tribe got into their specific place in, uh, in the land of Canaan. And if you remember, it was the, the two and a half tribes, uh, Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh. Remember, God had given them the land on the eastern side of the Jordan. And one of the stipulations for them to be in that and for God to uh, give them that land as his permissive will, he said, when your brothers go into, when they cross the Jordan, you must go with them and help them fight the battles so that they can get into their inheritance. And then once those victories have been obtained, then, then you can go back to your possessions, the land of your possession. And so that's exactly what they did. And if you remember last week, we, we looked into that. And we also looked into the trouble those two and a half tribes got in as they were finishing and as they were leaving the land going uh, toward the Jordan to cross over the Jordan, again, going eastward, to go back to the land of their possession, they decided to build an altar, if you remember, right before they crossed over the Jordan. And that was something that they were not supposed to do because there was one place that God had chosen to place his name there where the tabernacle would be erected, where the, where the worship would take place, the sacrifices, the offerings. And that was to take place in Shiloh. Remember, in Joshua 18, they finally erected the tabernacle, and that's where the sacrifices would take place. And God said that specifically. They were to sacrifice no other place. It was one place. God would choose where that place was. He chose Shiloh, and we're going to see in about 500 years from from this moment, we're going to see that God chose to bring it into Jerusalem. He brought it into Jerusalem under the hand of David, and the tabernacle was again reared up in Jerusalem. And then finally Solomon, after David's death, would build the the temple, and it would have a permanent place the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so we looked at that, and we looked at uh, how they, uh, they almost went to war with one another uh, because the, um, the tribes on the west heard that the tribes on the east had set up this altar. And if you recall, the, the men on the east, they didn't erect this altar to actual do sacrifices on them. They put it there as a memorial. They put it there as a witness uh, because they were going to be on the eastern side. And, and it's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, you, you can take a river. You know, geographically, there's a river that separated these tribes. But it, isn't it so interesting that it, it doesn't take much to divide people? And before long, they start viewing each other as us and them. It's very uh, natural, unfortunately, for us to do that. And it, certainly, land geography uh, helps in that way. And I say help, not in really a good way because they had this dividing line between them, and and those divisions aren't necessarily healthy. And so God was going to um, uh, challenge them, and uh, and again, they didn't erect this altar to do sacrifice, as we looked at that last week. So now, after this is all said and done, finally we get down to 
uh, after the tribes uh, finally cross over and everyone's satisfied, Joshua gives this farewell address as we look at it in chapter 23. So let's go ahead and get into it. And this was possibly delivered at Shiloh. This, that's the location where the, the, the um, altar or the, the tabernacle was set up. And so he goes on and he says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And I love the fact that it says this, you know, because isn't it somewhat touching to, to see God, all of God's leaders, you know, going back to Moses and now finally Joshua and Aaron. They all got to a certain age, and, and they were great men. They, they had their faults, as every person does. Is there anyone here without a fault? Uh, no one, right? We, we all have faults. And just with the, the, the giants of the faith that we think of, you know, Moses and we think of Joshua, you know, their time here on earth is temporary. God uses them for a, a specific time. And then it's time to move on. And in and, and, and all of this, God is in control. He's in control. So it says Joshua was old and advanced in age. Verse 2, And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and for their heads, for their judges and for their officers. And he said to them, I am old and advanced in age. Yeah, you are. He's over 100 years old at this point. He says, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. And isn't it true that if God be for us, who can be against us? Right? And uh, that's a truth that is so important for us to realize because uh, today, a lot of times, the, the adage, might makes right, is, is the thing that people go by. You know, if you've got enough money and enough armament, then we can get anything done. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, if God is on your side, there's really nothing that can come against you. And over and over again, we see the scripture proving that out. When Israel was in dire circumstances, when, when the odds were completely against them, and sometimes God even made those odds increasingly great against them so that he might be glorified, so that he might be shown strong on their behalf. Gideon's army is one of them. They had a lot of people. God whittled that huge army of thousands down to 300 men to get the job done. And it's amazing how God does that. He said, so, um, verse 4, he says, See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain, to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And that great sea westward that he's referring to is what? The Mediterranean. That's right. That's right. And verse 5, And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. And so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Isn't that awesome, the promises of God? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 23 really quick. Exodus chapter 23, because God did promise them this land. Now this is redundant for us, but it's, it's, it's good for us to look at this again. The Lord God has promised you that you're going to go in and possess this land, and it's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 23. If you go there, and verses 27 through 31 really is the promise. It's the promise. And then we get into the exhortation for obedience, which really begins at verse 32. So if you want to circle verse 32 and circle verse 27, you'll see where it begins and ends. And so verse 27 of Exodus 23 reads this way. 
And God says, I will send my fear before you. Remember, this is many years before they would get into the promised land where they're at now. He says, I will send my fear before you and I'll cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Notice how wonderful God is, even in the, even in the taking over the, of the land. He wants to make sure it's done in increments so that it's not too hard on the land and hard on the people. And, and that's just the way God is. He leads those gently with young, doesn't he? He's a good shepherd. That's what a good shepherd does. He doesn't drive the sheep and, and make them frustrated and angry and, and drive them right to the point of death. No, he's, he's gentle with them. And just like we ought to be gentle with one another. But he says, little by little, verse 30, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. Notice God's declaration. It's going to happen. It's a certainty. And I don't know about you, but I love that again about God, that he can speak as if things have already, that they've already happened. He can speak with such a surety, and I would encourage you to consider that. When he makes you a promise, it may not happen tomorrow. It may take a week. It may be a year before that promise comes to fruition. I know that he's made me promises long ago that I completely forgot about somewhat, and then he brought them to fruition. And he is able. I am not able, and neither are you. Right? We're not able for these things. Like Paul said, who's sufficient for these things? But when God speaks, you can count on it. He is going to do the work. And I will drive them up before you. Verse 32, and here is the exhortation to obedience. So there's the promise that we just read, but then the exhortation to obey. He says, you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods, and they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. And doesn't that sound, I mean, if you want to circle or underline a verse, that, that's a significant one. Because we're all fallible. And left to our own devices, we will always um, go cave into the flesh. And yet God has given us uh, his spirit that will, will, should guide us and do the right things, right? He says, you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest... They make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So there we have it. There we have the, the exhortation to obedience and the reason for it. Did you ever find it interesting that, you know, some people would say, wow, God sounds really insecure. You know, if you serve other gods, it's going to be a snare to you. You've got to serve me. And many would say, oh, God, he sounds so pathetic he sounds so insecure like if you don't love me I'm going to be upset but that's not the way it is that's not the way it is see God knows he is not insecure he alone knows who he is he has everything we need and he knows this and we need to remember that he has everything everything you can possibly need is found in him alone and let's not learn the hard way Let's not learn the hard way, but to be obedient. Verse 6, he goes, therefore, be very courageous. He's saying this, uh, Joshua saying this to the people. And again, on his last day, 
on earth. He's telling them this. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Let me read to you. You can just write this verse down, or these verses. But if we went all the way back to the very beginning of the book in Joshua chapter 1, we see a very similar thing happening when God was instructing Joshua encouraging him to be bold and be very courageous and to not be fearful. And I think it's interesting that in the very beginning when God commissions and calls Joshua, that now at the end of his life, on the very last day of his life, he is now saying the same thing to the children of Israel. Be very courageous. Be very courageous. Isn't that what God spoke to him back in chapter 1? Excuse me. Let me read it to you. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, remember remember this is the very beginning of the book of Joshua. We're just going to look at the first nine verses. I want you to see how often God encourages him. It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Notice, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will also be with you. And I will not leave you nor forsake you. And here it is, verse 6, underline this, or, or, or just write it down. Be strong and of a good courage. Do you need to be encouraged to be strong and to have good courage? I think we do because we live in a time in history where things are waning. And there are so many things against you, Christian, brothers and sisters. There's so many things against you that are warring against your soul. And you may feel a deadness. You may feel like a lethargy. And I would encourage you, if you're in that place, to drop to your knees tonight and ask God to get you out of it. Because he wants to bless you. He wants you to live a fruitful life, a life where your eyes are open and your heart is wide open. We cannot succumb to lethargy. We must get our hearts fixed back on Christ again. Because our eyes are everywhere else. We're so scattered by so many things. So he says to Joshua, Be strong and of a good courage, verse 6, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7 again, Only be strong and very courageous. Boy, Lord, am I really that, uh, um, am I feeling pretty weak and, and kind of scared? I think Joshua was. Because God doesn't waste words. Every word that he puts on the page for us is there by design. And so when God says to Joshua, don't be afraid, but be very courageous, there's a reason for it, because Joshua was afraid, and he was feeling very uncourageous, and he wasn't feeling strong. So God tells him, be strong and be courageous. And then down in verse 9, in that same uh, chapter 1, he says, have not I commanded you? Again, be strong and of a good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isn't he Emmanuel? As he is with us today, he was with Joshua. He was with him. In verse 6, be courageous. Be courageous. Keep to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from the right hand to the left. Notice the caution again. In verse 7, unless you go among these nations, these, the, uh, these who remain among you, 
Remember, they, they'd fought the big battles, but there were still pockets of enemies that were still in the land. Upon the inheritance, they were supposed to take care of those things. But the party lasted for a season, and then the laziness kind of set in. This is very natural for human beings. When we have a big victory, we tend to slack off, and we don't finish the job. Have you ever done like something like that where... You, you, you knew that you had something to complete, and you got, you got really close, maybe closer than what people thought you, thought you could go, and you start to revel in the victory of it, yet you haven't obtained the victory yet. <laughs> Has it, does that resonate with anybody? When you, when you think you're, you're, you're almost there to something, and you already start to see the victory lapse, and you start seeing the streamers come down before they've actually come down? It reminded me of a football game recently. I think it was the Super Bowl, actually. And uh, who was in the Super Bowl again? I forget. It was uh, Kansas City and, and San Francisco. There was a point, if you remember, guys, in the game, Kansas City, um, uh, uh, I was rooting for Kansas City, and San Francisco was beating them really bad in the fourth quarter, and everything, I mean, it looked dismal. It looked like there was no possible way. And the other team, San Francisco, sorry if you're a San Francisco fan, but they were starting to revel in it. You could see the, the, the sigh of relief. You know, you could see them slapping hands and all that stuff. And so they, they kind of knew they had it in the bag. And then all of a sudden, it turned the whole game around, and the other team came and just walloped them in the end. And see, the Lord is, is, is very interested in us not just going halfway. See, San Francisco, and I use this as, a, as an illustration because they got lazy when they got right to the end, and the other team perceived that, and they took advantage of them. And, and see, but we have to fight and continue until it is done. So I want to encourage you to keep going. And why? Because lest you go among these nations, those who remain among you. Notice, they still remain among you. Why is that? Because you haven't done the job. You haven't finished the job. You got into the fourth quarter, and you already started to celebrate. And now you're, you're getting walloped. You're getting walloped. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. And it's interesting, because as we look at verses 7 and 8, I put a star by those. Because Joshua was really prophetic in, in speaking this way, because that's exactly what would befall them in later years. That's exactly what would bring them into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 and certainly by the Babylonians for the southern two tribes in, in 606 B.C. Same thing would happen, and this is prophetic. In fact, uh, look with me. Just turn the page and go to Joshua chapter 24, verses 31. <clears throat> this is a really interesting verse. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, which we'll get to this, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And they served him all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. But notice, once they die, now the kids start to play again. They get, to the, they get close to the finish line, and they decide, you know what, it's, they, they, they've already had kind of victory. They've already tasted it a little bit, and they've gotten lazy. They haven't finished the job. And then in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, if there's two verses or two sections of Scripture I would have you look at, it's these two. Because in Judges chapter 2, it reads for us this. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal 
to Bochim, and we're going to uh, get to this in a, uh, probably about a month from now. We'll get it. We'll be in Judges in this area of Scripture. And again, this is uh, after uh, the book we're reading now. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Can you imagine an angel of the Lord? We believe this might have been a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus even. Really getting on their case. Why have you done this? And this is a pretty stern rebuke. Therefore, I also said... I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. They wept. And this is evidently a, um, a godly sorrow. Do you know the difference between godly sorrow and earthly sorrow? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us, Paul tells us, for godly sorrow produces repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Worldly sorrow is sorrow because it got caught. Have you ever seen somebody when they get caught? They're crying because of the consequences that are coming. They're not crying because they really felt bad about what they did. Because if they felt bad about what they did, they would have repented of it. But repentance is the proof of godly sorrow, of godly sorrow. So going on here in Judges chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And here's the verse in verse 7 of Judges 2. Notice this. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died when he was 110 years old. How's that for an old age? 110. Wow. He must have ate a lot of vitamin C. Very strong man. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, notice, this is the sad, this is the sad history right here. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Isn't that interesting? After Joshua, after the elders, after the men they admired, they put these men up on a pedestal. And isn't it funny? We often serve that which we can see. But as soon as the man that we can see who we feared because we saw the Lord upon him, once he's removed from the scene, we lose our fear of God. Unless somebody raises up somebody immediately like it was between Moses and Joshua, which after Joshua, things just kind of floundered. God had to raise up judges at different times. But once Moses and Joshua were out from, and the elders, once they had all passed away, the people forgot about God because they, they, they were looking at the man. And see, we live in a land of hero worshipers. I like this pastor. I like that pastor. Well, what happens if that pastor dies? Are you still going to go on with the Lord? Are you still going to worship him? Are you still going to follow him? Or are you going to serve? Or are you going to just get discouraged and just do something else with your life now? We have to understand this. And unfortunately, 
They did. They served. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And unfortunately, this is going to be the routine that we're going to see as we get into the book of Judges. For the next 450 years, it's going to be a roller coaster of they did great. They were serving the Lord, obeying him, and then they fell back into their idolatry, and they, God brought their enemies upon them. God would raise up a judge and deliver them out of the hand of their enemies. There'd be a time of prosperity, and then they would get fat, and then they would go down again, and it was just going up and down and up and down, and so it goes, so it goes. For 450 years, this unfortunate thing happened. So verse 9 back in our text says, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand before you until this day. And, and I love this, as he is on his deathbed, he's saying these things, and usually when people are on their deathbeds, the things that they share are extremely important, and we ought to be listening. So he goes on in verse 10, he says, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. You remember in, uh, you can just write down this reference over this verse, over verse 10 here, is in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 7. We're not going to read all seven verses, but I just want to read something to you. Remember what he's saying to them. He says, one man of you shall chase a thousand. That's the way it should be. One, one man of you, the, the fear of the nations will be so great that one man of you, Israel, will chase a thousand. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's, a, it's a, a, a chapter that we call the blessings and cursings of Israel. And God said, and, and just write this, the verse down, I'll read it to you. It says, it shall come to pass, if you diligently, notice, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, and here it is, that the Lord your God, he will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then you go down to verse 7. You can read the whole thing. It's, it's pretty interesting. But in verse 7 it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Do you see how just one Israelite in obedience to God will drive out the enemy. One of them will have an impact on many, on multitudes. And that's the way, that's the, the way of obedience. When they were obedient, that's the way it would be. That's the way it would be. He says in verse 11, going back to our text, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, notice there's a slight rebuke there. By the way, they're still remaining among you, children of Israel. You were supposed to take care of them. You haven't. Remember what I said? They're going to be thorns in your side. If you cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and you make marriages with them to go into them and they to you, know for certain, verse 13, that the Lord your God will no longer drive out those nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Again, this is, this is such a wonderful, uh, unfortunately, it's a good segue going into Judges, what uh, Joshua's telling them on his deathbed. He's telling them these things. Behold this day, he says, this day I am going before all the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass, not one of them has failed. Isn't God faithful? Has he, is he faithful to you? Has he been faithful to them? He has been. 
Nothing has failed of all that God told them that he was going to do. His end of the deal he held and he did. But he responded. He wanted them now to respond to what he has done and they were to do things as well, i.e. drive out the remaining of the elements of those pagan nations. But he says in uh, verse 15, therefore it shall, notice, it shall come to pass. Here Joshua is... um, He is prophesying again. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things that have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord God will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord God has given you. I find that interesting that even on his deathbed, you see God still using him to prophesy, to tell them, to warn them what's coming. I don't know about you, but the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua have been wonderful, but it has been there's been a a repetitive theme, and that is accountability. God has always told them what's going to happen. If you do this, then this is going to happen. If you do this, this is going to happen. They're called conditional promises, and we see one in the very next verse. And I want you to underline the word when. Notice verse 16. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you've gone and you've served other gods and bowed down to them. Underline the word then, because here's the condition. When you've done this, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Remember that chapter 28 in Deuteronomy that I was talking about? The, the, the chapter of blessings, well, there's also in that chapter a, a very large section of curses. And let me read to you just a couple verses. It begins in verse 15. It says, but it shall come to pass. Notice, if, condition, there's a condition here. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And there is a big, long list there, which we're not going to read. But I will read this one to you, two of them, actually. In verse 20, it says, The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings which you have forsaken me. Does that sound like a condition? It is. There's some conditions that God says, you know, uh, where God will make a, a promise that is unconditional. He made that to Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the sea, as the, as the stars of heaven, Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants, and you will inherit this land. And there was nothing that Abraham had to do to validate that promise. It was a promise that God made. He didn't apply any conditions to it. However, there are many like this where God says, if you do this, then I will do this. And when you do this, then I'm going to do this. Conditional promises. That means they had to do something about what they had heard. Just as we do, right? We have to put off the old man. You see that in Paul's letters so much. He gives that list, you know, put off those things that are warring against your members. Put off, and he gives you a long list of all those ugly things, fornication, wrath, and uh, adultery, and all that whole list there. He says, but now, you put off those things, but now put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the robe of righteousness. Put on these things. That's something we have to do. God has done his part, but we have to do something. And we can't even do it in our flesh, right? We have to do it by the Spirit of God. He, he, we need him. Without him, I'm a mess. Is there anyone here that's doing really well without the Spirit of God? 
No, I think I've, in my life I've proven that I can do nothing apart from him. I've tried. I've tried to perfect sin. I've tried to be the master at sin, to be a master at something, and I turn out to be the biggest loser. But God, but God gets a hold of a life. Does he love you? Has he saved you wonderfully? Praise the Lord. Notice in verse 25 of this uh, same chapter, in chapter 28, I'll, I'll finish with this one. He says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You should go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. Notice, it's just the exact opposite. You were supposed to be the one that would put to flight seven people. Now, because of your disobedience, now, oh, you know, you're going to flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Let's go into chapter 24. And I love what Joshua does here in this final chapter. It's really just a review. It's really a review from Abraham all the way to the present. He's given the children of Israel a Bible study. He's given them a summary of, of of the very beginnings of Abraham coming out of Ur the Chaldees over there on, in, in modern-day Iraq. He came out of there, and he went up north to Haran, and then he came down into the Promised Land, into the land of Canaan. And he gives them, basically, a Bible study. And we see this in other parts of the Scripture. You know, do you remember when uh, Stephen, the martyr, the, the first deacon of the church, remember in uh, Acts chapter 7, it records for us that he stood before the Sanhedrin before he was stoned to death. And he basically gave them a Bible study. Basically showing that Jesus Christ, this one in whom we believe, he is the, the summation of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he gives them a history of how he's to be the David's uh, son and how he was going to be David's, uh, you know, the heir to the throne of, of, of Judah and the, the heir of the throne of the king of David. And he goes through and he gives him his long Bible study, this long summary. And so Joshua here, on his last day, he does the same thing. And this is done at Shechem, which is um, just a little bit away from Shiloh. Let's read it together. A lot of this we're just going to read. It says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called the elders of Israel from their uh, heads, from their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And notice what Joshua said to all the people. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. And then he goes on. He says, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abram, Abraham, and the father of Nahor, they dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. Because remember, they came from what we call modern-day Iraq. They came from the other side of the Euphrates, Right? And they served other gods, he says. And then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, which is the river Euphrates. I led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So now we have Abraham. Now we have Isaac. And to Isaac, verse 4, I gave Jacob and Esau. Notice this. I think this is really sweet of the Lord to put this in here. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. You know, sometimes people get on, they get frustrated with the Lord because they think, well, he only cares about the Jewish people. But he doesn't just care about the Jewish people. Yes, he had a specific plan, a wonderful uh, heritage for them, wonderful promises. But it doesn't mean that he disliked anybody else. You see this right here. To Esau, he was not even the chosen. Jacob was the chosen one. But Esau, did I just cast him off and did I not care for him? No, I made him, I gave him mountains of, of Seir to possess. 
And what about Ishmael, too? Back in Genesis. Even though, you know, um, Isaac was born. What about Ishmael? Did God cast away Ishmael and say, you're not the chosen one. Get out of my way, boy. No, he made him a prosperous man. He made him a man of many nations. Many dukes came from him. So God is not a respecter of persons. He does have a plan. He did have a plan and does through a specific grace. That's definitely true, but he cares for everybody. We have to understand that. You know, even as Christians, we can't get too hung up on Israel, and we can't get hung up just on Christians. We have to realize that God loves people. He doesn't care what color your skin is. He doesn't care what part of the world you came from. He doesn't care what false god you may be serving now, and there are many people serving false gods over in the east. He loves all of them, and each one is a valuable soul to him that he loves, that he died, he purchased with his own blood. We have to remember that, because I think as Christians, and especially of those of us who love Israel, and you know, especially I'm on this buzz now because I'm about ready to take off, right? And so I'm very gung-ho Israel. And we ought to love Israel, right? The scriptures tell us. I mean, the people can be just like anybody else, right? But they're God's chosen people. He's got a plan for them. But does God not love everybody else? Doesn't he love the people who are calling themselves Palestinians, the Arabs? Does he still love those people? You better believe he does. He sees no one less valuable than the other. But yet we can somehow, sometimes, if we're not careful, we get our pet people, our pet groups of people, and we forget that God loves other people. So we have to think about that. No matter who they are, whether they're Democrat, whether they're Republican, whether they're independent, they, God loves them all, and we ought to love them all, regardless of who they are, what they are, where they've been, what they've done. It doesn't matter. Because I was one of those people on the other side of the river, <laughs> and God brought me into his land. Did he bring you into his land? Amen. Let's learn to love again. And I think we need to learn to love again. Because as time is growing, what does the Bible say? As, as iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. As we get closer to the end days, we're going to find that happening. Folks, we have to resist it. We have to pray against it in our own hearts. In our own hearts first. But God is not a respecter of persons. Verse 5, he says, Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt. According to what I did among them, afterward I brought you out. And so he's given them this Bible study, re- reminding them who, where they came from. What are their origins? It's important to know where you came from. Do you know your heritage? Do you know where you came from? It's important to know these things. When you, when you know where you've, where you've come from, you know where you're going. And thank God we know who we came from. We got the seed of of Abraham, the seed of faith. We got God in our hearts. We know that where are we going? Are we just wandering aimlessly in the world, or do we have a place to go? Didn't Jesus say, I've prepared a place for you that where I am you might also be? Is he indeed preparing a place? Is that where you're going? Because if it is, it ought to change the way I think today. It ought to change me. If, it do, if I'm not finding myself being changed, I better wake up. I better wake up and say, Lord, what's going on in my head? What am I doing with my life? How come I'm not speaking to people about Jesus anymore? How come I'm not talking to my friends and my neighbors? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When's the last time you put yourself in a position, the uncomfortable position, because it's never easy, is it? It's never easy. 
Because part of the gospel is that the person you're talking to, you have to tell them that they've sinned against God. That's part of the gospel, isn't it? You sinned, but so have I. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, verse 6, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea, another impossible situation that God was put them in on purpose. He led them to the Dead Sea to bring them into this impossible situation. So they cried out, verse 7, to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, 40 years to be precise. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and, and I destroyed them from before you. And then Balak... The son of Zippor, the king of Moab, he arose to make war against you, and I sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you, and so I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over to the Jordan. And this is where we pick up in Joshua, right? Then I, w- I went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But I delivered them all into your hand. <coughs> Excuse me. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with sword or with bow. And he's speaking to those kings on the east side, Sihon, the king of Heshbon that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 2. And then Og, the king of Bashan, who we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And then going on in verse 13 here, he says, But I've given you a land for which you did not labor. What a great thing. Can you imagine coming into a land and the house is built for you? You walk in, the... Uh, everything's spit polished, a beautiful staircase going up. Uh, you look out in the backyard, and there's a great big garden and all kinds of pleasant fruits and vegetables. Everything's ready there for you. The cows are out there. They don't even know a new master's in town. They're just out there, you know, out there chewing their cud. They don't know who owns them yet. Oh, you look different. Who are you? Oh, that's okay. Just get the milk. I'm your master now. They don't know. But I've given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them, and you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, here it is. Here's the turning of the chapter. Now, therefore, as a result of all this, guys, here on his deathbed, on his last day on the earth, Joshua tells him, therefore, fear the Lord. And notice the strong exhortation. And why did he do it? Because they needed it. Do you understand that God doesn't waste his breath? And he was urging Joshua with these words, and it wasn't for nothing because they needed to hear it because this is exactly what happened to them. What an unfortunate story. Actually, it's not story. It's history. What an unfortunate thing. See, that's why it's here for our nurture and admonition that we would not follow in these same footsteps. When God says to do something, it's really a good idea to do it (laughs) and not to argue with him and to say, well, I've got a better plan. I don't feel like doing it that way, Lord, but I can get the same thing done a little quicker and a little bit better my way. And God is saying, no, you may think it's easier. You may be able to do it quicker. You may think it's better, but in the end, it's going to be a bitter pill because there's, a, there's, there's something in the journey that God brings us to that brings us to an end of ourselves. 
that he gets the glory and not us. And there's something that he's doing in that journey. The process is so important. The ends do not justify the means, right? We know that sometimes to get from point A to point B, most of us think, well, it's a straight line. That's the quickest way. And the Lord says, well, that's true. But for you, we're going to take a little hiatus. We're going to take a little journey out here. Why is that? Because you need to learn something. And so-and-so could do it, and I wouldn't have to take them over here and over here and over here. I could take them a little bit quicker, a little crooked, but you for some reason. And this is one thing that Lord knows us so well. He knows us so well. It's like our life is, 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 is catered to us. He, he knows exactly what he needs to do with you, and it's individual. There's no cookie-cutter paths. It's all individual, and God is going to get us to the same place. But some people are, are just obedient, and they just go with very little resistance. And other people, they're just kicking their feet in all the time. Just, and God feels like he's just, he's just dragging them along. And he won't drag you along for too long. He'll let you stop and, and taste the bitterness of your decision and then get you back going after you've repented. That's how good he is. He leads us, and hopefully we listen. But notice, Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away, notice, he, he knows they've got strange gods among them. He says, Now put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord, serve Jehovah God. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, here it is. Choose yourself this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the Euphrates or the gods that are of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? you got a choice. Those gods, the gods that you're living in, or are you going to serve God? But notice what he says. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you serving the Lord with your house, with your entire household? Are you finding ways to serve together? I would encourage you to do that. Serve the Lord. Find ways to serve the Lord with your family. Serve the Lord in this church. There are so many things that could be happening in this church. Find something and do it. Outside of this church, find something and do it to serve somebody else. In your neighborhood, find something and do it to bless somebody else without asking for, you know... Do it because it's the right thing. But pray and seek the Lord. May he guide and direct you. But are you serving the Lord? So he goes on. He says, far, so the people answered, notice this, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. You notice the confidence that they had in their own flesh? Verse 17, for the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of bondage from the house of bondage, who did these great signs in our sight, and he preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom, through whom we passed. <coughs> Excuse me. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. You notice the confidence Boy, that's a crazy thing, confidence. It reminds me of Peter. Peter had a lot of confidence in his own flesh. Lord, everyone can, is going to flee from you, but not me. I'll stay with you to the very end. I'll die for you. And you know, there's a certain part of Peter that I really admire. Because you remember that night in Gethsemane, when they were coming to take him, Peter, in his rashness, in his impetuousness, he pulls out a sword, and he's thinking he's going he's to take this on. And he goes and he hacks off Malchus's ear. I don't think he was trying to hit the ear. Do you understand? He was meant, he was trying to bring a mortal blow to that man. 
And God in his mercy caused Malchus just to turn his head slightly at just the right time. And it probably hit him like this and the blade went off his shoulder but cut his ear off. I don't think Peter was aiming for an ear. I think he was taking off a head and he was just inaccurate. But yet the same Peter, just a little while later, would deny Jesus three times. He didn't know his own limitations, but in his bravado, I'll do it, Lord. I will do it. Confidence in my own flesh, I'll do it. I'll take up my sword and I'll just take care of business. There was one moment of flash in the pan courage that Peter had, and it was misguided. It was, it was wrong for him to do. But he had to prove himself. And then he failed then, and he also failed when he denied the Lord three times. Jesus says, Peter, you don't even know. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you've recovered, when you're converted, you know, minister to your brothers. But they said, we will serve the Lord our God. He is God. But Joshua said, verse 19, to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. Isn't that encouraging? He's telling them all his time, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. They say, we're going to do it. We're going to serve the Lord. Well, you can't serve the Lord. Wait, come again? Didn't you just tell me to serve the Lord and admonish me, and now you're telling me that I can't serve the Lord? It's because he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. God had given him a wonderful discernment. And he said to them, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Well, thank you very much. What a blessing tonight has been. I'm so glad to be here. You cannot serve the Lord. Joshua knew the rebellion, and the Lord must have impressed upon his heart this warning. And notice in verse 20, another conditional statement. Here it is again. Underline the word if. If you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods, and by the way, Israel, you're doing it right now. I know you've got them hid in your tents even right now. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, underline this word, then, there's the conditional statement, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, notice, no, but we will serve the Lord. We're, we're going to serve Yahweh. We're going to serve Jehovah again in their, in their zeal. And they, they didn't even know themselves. You know, do you know yourself? I don't know myself. Sometimes I think I do, and then the Lord brings circumstances in my life where I think I know I'm going to respond a certain way, and I find myself caving in. And it's because I don't know myself. See, Peter was like that too. All by himself, Peter thought, well, I'm not going to deny you, Lord, even if everyone denies you. And what's, what's the very thing that happened? That very night, he denied him. And Peter repented. It was, a, it was a godly sorrow. He repented. Judas, however, worldly sorrow. Then he went and hung himself. There was no repentance. Verse 22, so Joshua said to the people, notice what he says, you are witnesses against yourself that the Lord has chosen the Lord that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Can you almost hear the, their voice? We are witnesses. Yeah, we, we've heard it, yeah. Now, therefore, he said, put away. Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. He knew that they were still harboring these things. And yet they're saying in their strength, in their, in their own false bravado, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. But he knows better. And he says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. <laughs> and you know, they may have been sincere, but you know, sometimes we can, we can be sincerely lacking. You know, I don't doubt their sincerity, you know, and, um, 
but they lack the power and they lack, they lack the devotion to God to follow through with it. They just didn't know themselves. And as, as, as was the children of Israel, so we are as individuals. We're really no different. Every, every single person, again, regardless of background, ethnicity, uh, no matter what, we are all the same. Until, and we, we, that's why we must come to the Lord. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And you're reading it right now, by the way. Praise the Lord. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the, all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. And it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. Boy, that, that stone was, uh, uh, has heard a lot of words. And it's there as a witness against them. Because Joshua knew what was coming. What was coming. The Lord was revealing it to him. So, Joshua left, let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. In verse 29, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. Notice verse 31. This is a, a verse to, uh, to underline or to circle because we read it earlier. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. That's a really great verse to remember because I think our country is a lot like that. We, we, we typically forget what we fought so hard to obtain. And here we are in our country right now, and there's so few people uh, who really understand what it took for our country to get to where it is. And there's a lot of young people coming up who could care less. They don't care. They, 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 they haven't been taught history in school, so they just think that this is, they just take this for granted, and, and it's an unfortunate thing. This freedom that we have has been paid for by the lives of many it's a very unique country that we live in, folks. A very unique blessing that God has given us. In the world, this country, of all the countries in the world, is the most blessed. We've been given so much, and we have such great freedoms that most parts of the world don't have. They do not have them, and yet they are all ours, and it's worth fighting for. If I'm called upon, I, you know, it's like when I was a young guy, I didn't want to go into the service. I, I didn't want to sign up for the selective service, but I did because it was my duty to do. I never got called. But I feel for some reason now, more than ever, you know, if I could have the same heart right now as I did back when I was 18, I would say, sign me up, I'm going. At least I think so. Because now I understand what we have, and it's worth fighting for. I digress, so forgive me. Verse 32, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, in the plot of ground which Jacob had brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, he died, and they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. In the mountains of Ephraim. So what an amazing book this has been. Isn't that awesome? 
You know, you just look how God prepared them. In the desert, he prepared this people by leading them through all these things and teaching them hard lessons. Many of the people perished in the wilderness because of the rebellion. But God prepares them. He, 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 he gets them ready. And then finally, he brings them into the promised land the conquest, and they go into the central part. Then they go down south. Then they go north. And then they conquer the land. And then the two and a half tribes go over, you know, after they divide the land. And now they go over, and now they're residing on the east side of the Jordan, and everybody's happy. And now we come to the end of the book where Joshua on his deathbed, he tells them, he warns them in advance. This is what's going to happen. And in spite of all their, their heart's desire to do the right thing, and I, again, I think they were sincere at the time, but they didn't understand that because of the disobedience from the past, they were living amongst enemies that were going to seduce them. It would be a snare to them because they weren't obedient. They didn't finish what God had told them to do. And because of that, it would have ramifications. There were, there's always a consequence for disobedience. Always. So... Let's stand. Let's pray. A good book. Wouldn't you agree? In a couple weeks, we'll begin the book of Judges. Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray that, Lord, uh, the things that we learn from the book of Joshua, Lord, we see a lot of uh, accountability here, Father. Make us accountable, Lord. We've heard much, and, Lord, you've revealed much to us. And so, Jesus, we pray that, Lord, we would be a people that would be on our knees that we'd be obedient to you, that we would no longer offer excuses for anything. But, Lord, we would be so willing, willing. And, Lord, help us to fall in love with you even more than we are. Lord, I love you, but I know that there are so many areas in my heart that are left still, even now, just I need to surrender, and I need for you to shine your search light upon. And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, too, that you give them that same grace tonight. Same grace tomorrow, Lord, all this weekend, next week, next month. Lord, use us and forgive us. And Lord, help us to be obedient to you. Because, Lord, you're the lover of our soul. You're the one who has saved us. Lord, you're the one who has secured a place for us. So, Lord, help us to respond to this great grace that you've given to respond to this great love that you've demonstrated in so many wonderful ways. Help us to respond out of love, not out of duty or out of obligation, but out of love and out of obedience because we love you, Lord. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.